0: In that passage you've just read, Nadine, there's a, kind of, a density of felt experience, which is one of the qualities that sustains all the way through the novel. We feel we're living the characters' experiences with them. But before we get into the detail, which I'm sure many of the, uh, your audience here tonight will want to, to ask you about, I wonder if you could just um, talk a little about the period the novel covers, because it, begi- it covers almost 20 years, although it covers three or four years in some detail. Yeah. And that period, roughly 2006 to 2010, sees the exit of and Becky from the South African stage and the arrival of Jacob Zuma. Yeah. And I wondered if you could tell us what it was, what it is about that period that's barely accomplished um, today but demanded to be written about.
1: Well, demanded, that comes from living there and living it, being part of it and being part of the experience that was going on all around you. In the vast population, the vast black population, we are 50 million people and less than 10% are white. And then we have, of course, people who are Thank heavens of mixed blood. We have the Indian population dating from the time when indentured labourers were were brought indeed by the the British and the Dutch farmers to start the sugar industry in South Africa. Um, It all goes back a very long way. And it's all there in um, the not the scientific one in your blood, but there's another kind of DNA, I think, that comes from everything that you've come through and come from in in the people from whom you've descended. So when you live there, during these, the few years that you mentioned, all this is not just behind you, it's surrounding you, it's being absorbed by you, it's within you, and it comes to you from the people among whom you live. And so that's how... um, A story like this comes about.
0: Right. Now, the way I think we're going to work this is, if you if you'd like to ask a question, do put your hand up, and we'll try and sort of go evenly round the room, so that everyone gets a chance. So, who would like to ask a question? At the back, in the blue shirt, and then over to the right here.
1: Speak up, please. You're far away. That's a very interesting moment. There was not one single moment, but there must have been a number of moments um, and a number of experiences of what people were going through, how they were dealing with it, and how the um, political pressures were um, indeed influencing personal life. So I think these moments came together.
0: And then over here.
2: is one of the finest in the world, and I read the article in the Sunday Times yesterday about how former President De Klerk is so concerned about the new policy that's going to happen at the conference coming up in June. I believe that the Constitution may be change by the ANC, and that they're betraying the trust that he and Mandela put Who
1: was concerned, that? President De He's a bit late to becoming concerned about these things. <laughs>
0: the forces to prevent this to
1: happen. I wonder if you any comment on that. Well, really, I'm astonished by this and truly um, what he thinks is not uh, something... Uh, it's not um, something that is likely to affect whether we achieve the kind of changes we want or not because he has the, the whole um, mantle of the past, I'm afraid, hanging over him, so for us that doesn't mean very much. As a matter of fact, um, I was fortunate enough to be one of the people who went with Mandela's um, entourage when he got the Peace Prize with de Klerk. This was something very hard to swallow for uh, people like myself and people in the in the Mandela um, entourage because Right, de Klerk did come to the table, as the saying goes, with Mandela. But um, it was all done indeed with, uh, not with good, with really with good, good grace. And during the time that the peace talks between them were going up and going, going on, and there were still occasions of violence from his supporters. And he also, having been there, um, noticed how, in a grudging way, he behaved at at the actual ceremonies. So that when young um, Norwegians, of course it takes place in in Norway, the prize, when they paraded past the hotel where we were, and we were on the the balcony, um, and they started singing freedom songs, then Mr. de Klerk and his lady, turned away and walked inside so uh, you can imagine that we it would be very um, unlikely to be moved in any way by some effort of his. By moved I don't mean emotionally, I mean in practice.
0: Okay. Um, maybe, may I just ask, was behind your question the, the, the bill that's currently um, being brought into law which is about the... Um, um it's the Protection c- 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 of State p- c- Information Protection bill. of stat- State Information Bill, which is out with the... I think you said it, was, it had gone through the stages and it's now out with the Council of Provinces.
1: Well, it was accepted by the, the government in the House of Assembly in um, November last year, but there is, of course, great and growing and continuing <coughs> protest against it because it is the end of freedom of expression, in our country, and it's totally against the provisions of our wonderful Constitution, which is one of the best in the world, and it's against the Bill of Rights. It really destroys freedom of expression.
0: You know, there was one over. Yes, just over
2: Partially the question you already asked, because I think the concern, of course, Mr. Clerk is irrelevant, but is there a valid concern that, the, that through the, the power of the ANC and the number of seats it holds in Parliament, that you see some of the downside of this one-party state occurring in South Africa, and of course there are many bad examples of that in, in surrounding countries. Is that a real concern, or is that just something that the come up
1: with? No, it's a tremendous concern, especially, and also a delusion, for those of us who have supported the African National Congress from the time before it was indeed, it was, it was banned, until the time when it finally came into its own and um, formed indeed uh, the majority in a majority government. So it is of great concern, tremendous concern.
0: And in fact, earlier in the... uh, At the end of last week, you you were at the South South Bank Centre, where there was a celebration of 40 years of Index on Censorship, which is one of the magazines and campaigning groups for freedom of expression. Um, based in the UK, but with an international remit, and sorry, that's something I didn't switch off earlier. Um, and during that, during your presentation, there, Nadine, you, you talked about, as you have done here, about what the what that bill would mean, and also the campaign that's being mounted to oppose it, and what people outside South Africa might do to support you. Do you yes, want to just comment on that a bit?
1: Well, um, as I say, there's very, very strong dismay that we seem to be returning to the old apartheid censorship. It has a different name. One wants to know what is it that the state has to be protected from in people um, using information. It pertains to um, the state, members of the government, their lives, their behavior and their policies. It's very, very difficult indeed to get them to define what this is. I think we, everyone recognizes in our country as elsewhere that when it comes for instance to the military, uh, this is a given. But the idea that in South Africa this is so important, that we are in danger of being invaded, by whom? We have the strongest army and we're the the most developed country on the African continent, so it's unthinkable. Quite the other way around that we are taking in um, the refugees from the conflicts all around us. Who else is going to invade us? We have good relations now with the South American countries, which are geographically and historically through the slave trade and so on, obvious that they want to bring this about. We can't remain in the old north-south, south-north, Europe, South Africa, South Africa, Europe uh, mindset that we were. But are we going to be invaded by an army from little Cuba? They're going to turn South Africa into a communist state? You know, these are unthinkably ridiculous. So nobody, we're not in any danger of uh, of being invaded. So it can't be that. What we are in great danger of under, I should say, is indeed the tremendous corruption, unfortunately, from the higher from the from the highest of, uh, officials in government, from the cabinet itself, um, and even going so far. If you look at the history. Of Mr. Jacob Zuma, our president, corruption has become a kind of culture from the top down in our country. And those of us—and I'll outline to you tell you who they all are in terms of organisations in a minute—all of us, indeed, we think of it as the the protection of corruption in high places. That's what the bill is is aimed at. This is what what the bill's real purpose is, to cover up the corruption, which comes very mainly from um, the tender system. So somebody comes along, very welcome, to start up a new industry in South Africa, yes, and um, then they give tenders to give permission (coughs) to go ahead with us. The way to get that tender, your tender against mine, is indeed to bribe. And this happens quite unbelievably often in so many levels now of our society. Right from, as I say, right from the top, from the famous, the infamous arms deal, which has dragged on the inquiries into it for years, which involved um, some British firms, German firms, French firms principally and the money, the the bribe money that was given to people in in, in the cabinet and the government was enormous. So this, we believe, is really behind the protection of state information. But it has, I don't know whether to go on,
0: well, perhaps tell, tell us a little bit about the organisations who oh, are yes, campaigning against. The
1: organisations um, that are mainly, though there's a, a lot of um, individual public um, appall, we're really appalled at what's going on. There is the, the, um, the National Editors' Forum, because the, the bill, of course, seems to be its, its most um, obvious uh, victim is the press. So the independent editors forum is one. Then we've got another organization called Right to Know, which is a more general one of people, the ordinary public. We have the right to know what's happening in our country, why how it is being governed, at what level of honesty. And then there's another one called um, the Freedom of Expression Institute. And that institute has between 300 and 400 small um, civil organisations, little groups of people who belong to it. So as you can see, this is a big movement. And the position now is that the, the, uh, the bill was, I say, passed in November last year, and it has the, the tremendous <laughs> uprising of uh, conviction that it's wrong has indeed meant that it had to go through some other kind of form of um, taking note of public indignation. It then has gone to something (coughs) called the Council of Provinces. Our provinces have come together to look at it and to see how it can perhaps be changed to make it more acceptable. Now it depends upon whether they will pass it as it is or whether they will make these amendments public and we start all over again to see whether it can ever be made acceptable or not. Now they said, they've been looking at it uh, for months. Now they said that they would give their opinion, their decision on the 7th of April. The day before I left on the 12th of this month, it was announced that, no, no, it's now been put off. It's going to be the 17th of May. So you can see the process. They are hoping, I think, that we, the general public, will slowly begin uh, about a process of more um, attrition. We'll begin to accept it as inevitable. Seventeenth of May is quite a long way off.
0: So, in the in the middle there. Um, yes.
1: Well, I think um, our writers, novelists, playwrights, yes, short story writers, during apartheid time, indeed, had a considerable influence. Many of us were banned, but then our books were published abroad. And uh, this was a very important aspect, I think, of the possibilities that we used to rally people against apartheid. And, of course, now there is, as I've said, one sees this bill principally as affecting the press. But it doesn't only affect the press. It will affect novelists, story writers, the theatre, playwrights, and even, if we have to look back to apartheid, and it seems to be going back to this, there were even cases where artists, their paintings and drawings and etchings were removed from the walls of their exhibitions because they dealt with subjects in a certain way that was um, offensive to the apartheid regime. So those of us who've lived there through apartheid indeed know what any form of freedom of expression can mean. Why is it necessary? If I libel you, you could take me to court in the ordinary way. But if I may just take a moment to explain how this works how the the, uh, the the bill works if you indeed you do something that displeases them. Um, I come to you, and you work perhaps in a very ordinary position in a government department, and you tell me something perhaps about um, the, the money that is being voted on for the education department. That sounds safe enough, but it isn't or for um, building roads or housing. And you, I'm a journalist, and you tell me that this and that and the other is on the cards. I then, as a journalist, write a piece about it. I have this knowledge, and I write a piece about it. I will be brought to court, um, and I'll be asked... I'll be, be um, arraigned not only for what I've done, but I must give the name of the person who provided the, the information. And that person is then, of course, has broken the law. And that person, too, can have a, by informant, can, for, for saying just a word here or there, can have a sentence of 5 <coughs> to 25 years because this has indeed endangered the state. So as you can see, it's a tremendous trap for anybody who speaks openly about anything or writes openly about anything or makes it the subject in a play or has people discussing in a book. Such things happening. It it isn't only the press. Of course, the press is the most obvious and the most important to begin with, but it goes much further than that. Now, these organisations that I've been telling you about, we have got to look at the time when we all believe that somehow, with a little few little tinkerings here and there, it is going to be passed again. It's going to be accepted. What is left to us? The Constitutional Court. So we plan then to take the issue of the freedom of expression to the Constitutional Court, which has led the government then to start looking at the Constitution and by extension the Constitutional Court. Whether indeed we had a transition from apartheid to post-apartheid, do we not need another transition? Are there not uh, certain things that have to be uh, changed again? Because life goes on. So as you can see, it's very uneasy to put it mildly.
0: Okay. Uh, Yes. one at the back, lady on the right and then the gentleman just to well this, this right.
1: This is a question really more about the, the book itself and, and the mixed race couple Jabber and Steve and I really wondered where they came from, they developed during the book, they have a, at times quite an uncomfortable relationship with, with each other with their own families and I just just wondered what inspired Jabba and Steve, whether Well, a writer who has any honesty and who is doing what I think writing is, especially fiction, it is um, in discovery of the life that is around you and that you're living. And obviously, I've lived there all my life. All these things <coughs> have been developing and happening, first of all through apartheid and now um, the whole social... At the per- atmosphere, the way people conduct their private and emotional lives, especially those who have been self-sacrificing and given up a normal personal life during the struggle. So it was, how shall I put it, it's a kind of climate that I have breathed and lived in. It's not something that I've gone out to to look for. It's come to me.
0: Yes. (coughs) And, yes?
2: <coughs> yeah. My question was really a follow-up question to the previous question. So, I don't have my hand experience of South Africa, but I've worked a lot in Eastern Europe and in North Africa, and one of the hardest things is to, for people to reconcile themselves with, with their history. And I've seen countries spending years and sometimes decades, even generations, on reconciling them. And Reconcile yourself. So, so, of course, your writing suggests that it is much more difficult and and, and not as simple as as uh, often portrayed. The first of all, it is this a genuine uh, reconciliation that South Africa has gone through. Could have been done different they become more genuine. And what finally, what is the role of writing and, and writers yeah. in this? Process?
1: Well, of course, it's all this question. It's, this is you've put your your finger on a very big issue. We do carry the whole past there and it didn't begin as people are inclined to think when the the National Party came to power and and invented the term apartheid and then applied all the dragonian things that they, they did. It began in the 17th century. It began in 1652 when someone from the Dutch East India Company seeking a pathway, a seaway to India stopped at the, at the Cape. That was the beginning of colonization. It stemmed from that. And the colonization right from the beginning uh, simply took away the land that belonged to the indigenous people. There is no getting away from that and there was no um, um, compensation. They were not paid for it in any way. So this is all behind the strong movement now um, among the majority black population to have the land returned to them. And now it's not only the land, it is the incredible mineral resources that have made the country, developed the country and made it rich. Of course, the the argument, we often discuss these things together, and one has to say to black comrades, look, uh, if The colonials hadn't come. These wonderful mineral resources, the gold, the platinum, the uranium, everything. Would you have discovered them and had the skill to exploit them? And of course, they admit, no, we wouldn't have. So there is some kind of a trade-off, but it's been a very unfair one, because having brought this development to the country, it's the whites who have continued to um, benefit from from these wonderful resources and the black population are the people they have gone down and dug the gold and brought it up. All this lies in our past and it makes um, relations in the present. However much people wish for us all to live together, for many reasons that we should, it makes it difficult as you can understand and it complicates personal relationships even when people have no color sense and this of course is what is behind, I suppose, the life of these two people, Jabu and Steve.
0: Yeah. Well, <clears throat> while you think of the next question, I oh, don't know, here it comes, <laughs> Lady in the Red Jumper. Go ahead. I, I, one of the
1: first books that um, got me into modern literature um, was actually J.M. Kirksey, *Waiting for the Barbarian.
2: And so I sort of, I guess my early years of reading modern literature through
1: that time when apartheid was still very much in force mm. and I was reading quite a lot of South African literature and I I always wondered what life was like for um, authors who were in South Africa, whose books were bound there but they were being published abroad. I mean obviously, you know, I guess the people in charge would know roughly what they were saying. I mean how, how bad was it for authors? Well I was there? one of them. Yes. And but fortunate enough there again, if you're writing in a world language um there's a good chance that your books are going to be published and read somewhere else and that somehow some of them will come back. Mm-hmm. I was thinking I was hearing from somebody else. Who was it? There was uh, some group here or maybe a publisher. Oh, yes,
0: it was it's Peter Florence, who runs the Hay Festival, interviewed um, Nadine at Lunchtime in Warstones for a, for a podcast. Mm-hmm. And he told the story that his father, who was South African, that had left South Africa was a librarian, used to buy Nadine's and other South Africans' novels, read them, take off the jackets, wrap them in an Enid Blyton jacket, and post them, <laughs> and post them to South Africa. And that was one of the ways yes, that yes. the books got in.
1: But it was a strange experience not to be read by your own people in your own country. Well, it depends who you were. I had uh, several, two black friends who, indeed, um, their places were, ra- were their homes were raided and um, manuscripts were, were taken away.
0: Now. Yes, now we've got two. There's, the, one at the back on, on my right and the gentleman in the blue shirt on the left, so the man at the back on the right first. He's disappeared. Do
2: you think okay? not the
0: young, man. I think your pardon. young of
2: all races understand the state in this upcoming bill?
0: Oh yes,
1: we've got a lot of, it, there's no age, it's not something that, um, <coughs> older people only, there are young people who are very much involved. For instance, the right to know is in an organisation of, of, um, of young people, mainly.
0: So the bill is seen as a, amongst a certain part of the population of South Africa, is seen as a very serious threat
1: Not through all say ages by a large part of the, large of part. the population, okay. black, white, any any, any shade of colour. Okay,
0: and then the gentleman right at the back there. My question was, uh, just following on the other one, did you in your time meet some of the other great?
1: I don't understand what the question is, though. Sorry.
0: No, we were talking about other writers like that were being published abroad.
1: Oh, well, of course, but Alan Payton has been dead a long time. But Andre Brink and I, we were together two years ago. We started, indeed, um, protesting against this and gathering signatures of people, um, several thousand people signed. And then he and I put together a, a kind of manifesto from what we learned from the people who were, who were indeed concerned about this. And we then looked for a way to get it to President Zuma because if you just send it off, it's going to go into the first waste paper basket. Well, as it happened, it just went into the second waste paper basket <laughs> <laughs> because we didn't find someone who could get it straight to the presidential office. Neither Andre nor I had um, any response at all from, not never mind the president, from the president's office that they'd even received it, though we knew, of course, from the person who personally delivered it and and had a for that it was there. So, as I say, there was a second dustbin,
0: really. Mm -hmm. One of the questions I was wanting to to ask you over the last few days, Nadine, is... um, in the novel there's a there's a wonderful scene at the university where where they're f- early on where they're first discussing the question of xenophobia and one of the people on the platform gets a felt tip pen and scratches out the word xenophobia and writes poverty and one of the big issues in the book is how th- this new nation of south africa deals with the question of it of the poverty amongst its own people this isn't, we're we're now in a democratic regime what can be done um, about that. And one of the things that occurred to me, because you mentioned um, South Africa looking um, across the Pacific to Latin America, yes. whether the policies pursued by President Lulu when he was president in Brazil with the idea of the Bolsia Familia, which was a, which was a kind of social, uh, social policy to put money directly into the hands of uh, the person running the household, usually the, w- usually the woman, um, and y- y- doing two things. One was using the profits, if you like, from the businesses run in Brazil to help bolster a progressive social policy. And on the other was inward investment, rather than bringing in foreign expertise to build ships or roads or d- drill for oil, but to develop that expertise locally so that the profits went back into the country and not out to um, a, a foreign or international company. And I just wondered if there's... Has there been much discussion or attempt to do this in South Africa?
1: There has, and there are related moves. For instance, um, industry, of course, encouraged all the time, the industrial development we need in order to deal with our huge unemployment mm-hmm. problem. Um, and there are, have been clauses... They still exist, so that if a company comes and it's going to start up some industry. Then um, it ha- there's a clause whereby, out of its profits, it has to indeed hand over to the, the community where that resource is being mined a certain percentage. Yeah, um, and it also has some say. I think that's right, in how this should be used, whether for schools, hospitals or whatever, in, by cooperating with the people. It just hasn't been done. It hasn't been enforced. And the people who promised, the big industrialists who came and, prom- and promised this, have chosen to ignore it. And now we have um, China, with its big moves in many parts of the world, We have the Chinese coming, also wanting with their um, industry and skill to start up certain industries. But they want to to make it a a condition that they bring a quite large portion of their own labour from China instead of employing our own people. And they soften it by saying, and the, the... our um, workers being experienced in the type of mining or whatever it is that we're going to do, then um, they will instruct your local people. Well, of course this is totally unacceptable that people should, that we should bring in workers from somewhere else. And so the Congress of South African Trade Unions and other organisations uh, have indeed protested against this and I think it has been squashed now It won't happen. If they want to come and and, uh, enjoy the resources that we have, then they must employ our own labour and um, train them, train our own people, give them the skills that uh, are required.
0: Now we've heard quite a lot this evening about, if you like, the public life and politics and the the state of the South African nation, but I wonder if anyone has a, a more literary question about the writing of the novel or the um, the, re- the, the reading experience that they would like to ask because we're coming into our last few minutes so I think we can probably take a couple more questions um, if anyone's burning to ask one. Well, I've, I've got one prepared fortunately. <laughs> now, I said at the beginning one of the, one of the experiences in reading the novel is that you feel like you're pell-mell in the middle of a lived life and one of the things that strikes you very early on is that you, you, you move, as many novelists have done, sort of into and out of your character's points of view. Mm. Um, we see things through Steve's point of view. We see things through Jabu's point of view. And th- but then there is the really interesting thing that happens when they're both in the same room together and you're jumping into Steve's head to explain something mm. and then there'll be a, a parenthesis to say or well, Jabu didn't see it like this, and then you move over to, to Jabu's point of view. And this, simultan- I would call it simultaneity of narration, is an is a, a exhilarating but also quite heady experience. And I wondered if that was something that grew out of the story you were trying to tell or whether it's a technique you've, you've used before and developed uh, to this level. No,
1: I think it's, it's grown out of this particular story. <laughs> There's something that will interest you I think about the whole question of who writes about whom and who has the right to. Um, there are some um, black coverage writers who think that uh, a white writer cannot create a black character and the other way about that a black writer cannot have a black, a white character. There was an early exception to this about uh, 10 years ago where a wonderful writer called Lewis Nkosi, who alas um, died recently, rather tragically, and he wrote um, a marvellous novel. I wish it could be revived and republished. I think it, it would find a great interest in readership called Mating Birds, where indeed he turned this around and he created white characters. In general, black writers stick to the colour and whites will appear um, summarily. in, there won't be major characters but of course he did not follow this and uh, we often talked about it and he he said, we all live together and I as a black know things about you and other white people that you don't know about yourselves. And it's the other way about. And we know, perhaps, as are white, things about blacks, black writers who don't know, or black people generally about themselves. And it is out of this challenge, I think. And this, this is the true um, synthesis, human synthesis. When you allow, and indeed you pursue the fact that, as I say, we know things about each other that the, the, the subject is not aware of.
0: Well, that is a very good answer, a much better answer to, than the question deserved. <laughs> so, so, so thank you for that. And I'm going to feel a bit like an auctioneer. I can take one more question, but this really is the last question, and it's there right at the back. Um, I
2: was just wondering...
1: telling the truth is the key there. I'm not a political writer, and I'm not a non-political writer, and I'm not a woman writer. I'm just a writer.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much to Nadine Gordimer for coming. It's such an inspiration to have you here, and a real honour to have you here all the way from South Africa. Thank you, everyone, for coming to the Bloomsbury Institute for our book club event. Um, Our next event is on April the 17th, and it's with John McGregor, D.W. Wilson, and Roshi Fernando. Um, And our next book club event is with Ben McIntyre on April the 25th. So I hope you'll come to that. And if you'd like to sign the visitor's book, it's on the way out. And do put your email address there if you'd like to receive our newsletters. Thank you again to Nadine Gordimer and Bill Swainson.
1: Well, I'd like to thank you all for the good questions, and I've enjoyed our tune very much. And thank you, Bill.